I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You didn't have a lot of money, but you shared yourself through food. If tragedy befell one of your neighbors, there was a Corningware dish of something that went to that neighbor. There was always an opportunity to bring something to somebody, whether it was if one of the neighborhood kids was sick, a plate of brownies or something like that. Welcome to Your Mama's Kitchen, the podcast that explores how we're shaped as adults by the kitchens we grew up in as kids. I'm Michelle Norris. Today, I spoke to someone whose name is synonymous with the Thanksgiving holiday for American families, the television legend Al Roker. If you've ever tuned in to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, you've probably witnessed his radiating personality and infectious smile as he ushers in the next big float or the big marching band. He's been on the air for 40 years, predicting the weather on NBC's Today Show, winning 14 Emmys and earning the nickname America's Weatherman. He's also created a bit of a food empire of his own, hosting special cooking segments, authoring several cookbooks, and he's even hosted his own podcast called Cooking Up a Storm with Al Roker. All that is to say, he has never been shy about his skills in the kitchen and on the grill. And in this episode, you'll also hear some of his tips about how to make the perfect waffle. Now, before he became the charismatic TV personality we all know and love, Al Roker was a shy, bespectacled kid obsessed with comics and audio equipment. In this conversation, we reach back to Al's childhood in Queens outside New York City. You'll hear about how his mama cooked for a big family on a tight budget out of a tiny kitchen and how her recipe for Jamaican oxtail stew with dumplings still makes Al Roker swoon. And since he's hosted the biggest televised Thanksgiving event every year since 1995, we also hear about what the holiday means to him, especially after he had to sit out his first parade in decades because of a health scare. So in this episode, a dose of gratitude, layered with a little nostalgia and served up with a lot of laughter. Mel Roker, I'm so glad that you were with us. You spend a lot of time thinking about food through the work that you do at the Today Show. We see you cook. I watch you today making tacos. And through your own adventures, your show, um, your podcast, Cooking Up a Storm with L. Roker, your cookbooks, uh, including the big bad book of barbecue and your hassle-free holiday cookbook. So you know your way around a kitchen. 
Well, I do like food. You know, I'm married to Deborah Roberts of mm-hmm. uh, ABC News, mm-hmm. co-anchor of 2020, and um, we are obviously two different people. But when it comes to food, we really are two different people. I mean, if she could subsist on air and water, I think she would be fine. Really? I am just the opposite. <laughs> well, food is the focus of this podcast, and so I'm glad that you bring that enthusiasm and that outlook to this, because I'm right there with you. But I'm wondering, what is your favorite meal that was produced in your mama's kitchen? And which house was it in? Was it in the house that you were living in when you were born or the house you moved into later on? It's interesting you say that because before we had a house, we lived in a couple of different projects. And I don't really remember my mother's cooking because I was maybe, I think we moved into our house when I was eight. And before that, it was, you know, fairly rudimentary. Uh, The house we lived in, that's where I remember holiday meals and people coming over. And before that, it was just kind of a blur. And what I remember most, I mean, besides the food, and I don't know what the physical layout of your kitchen is as opposed to your mother's kitchen. My mother's kitchen, we had one oven. There was a four-burner cooktop, I think Magic Chef cooktop, And yet she could turn out for 12 people a meal that included baked goods, a turkey and or ham and sides all at the same time. And, you know, I'm fortunate. I'm blessed. You know, I've got a great kitchen. I've got a a six burner stove, a dual oven, you know, a a warming drawer. And uh, I still struggle to get it all out at once. And probably a microwave and an air fryer, too. Yeah. (laughs) I draw the line at the air fryer. Okay, we're going to put a pin on that because I love the air fryer. Okay, but anyway, not only did I marvel at what she made, but how she was able to make it and seemingly all effortlessly. So you grew up in a neighborhood called St. Albans. Yes. In Queens. You had five siblings, so there were six of you Mm -hmm. in the household with your mom and dad. This sounds like a household that probably was a little bit loud, had a lot going on. Yeah, we got calls from the airport to keep it down. (laughs) So I'm wondering if you could go back in time and space and describe the kitchen and what it looked like. Take me inside that space. Well, we lived in a three-bedroom semi-attached house on a corner lot in Queens in St. Albans. You know, you walked in the front door, there was a living room. Uh, If you kept going a little to the left, there was a very small dining room. Somehow, though, my mother managed to cram in a break front hutch, a dining table, and 12 chairs. There were also two extensions that would go in it. And then if you went straight, there was a small kitchen that had literally enough space for a very small kitchen table that could seat four people. There was a Frigidaire refrigerator that was yellowish color. There was a matching stove or oven, I should say, in a cabinet. And then there was uh, a four-top burner and then a sink. And no dishwasher. And, you know, the window looked out onto the backyard, which was a postage stamp with a carport in the back, but that was the kitchen. And if you had three people in there, you were crowded. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you had a big family. Yes. So your mother and father, your father is Bahamian, is that correct? His family is from the Bahamas? First generation Bahamian. And your mother's family is from Jamaica? Yep. Jamaica and New York. 
or, or I should say Boston. Was this a, a kitchen that had a very strong West Indian influence? It, you know what? It did and it didn't. You know, it depended on the day. My mother, like most first-generation folk, had her traditional food, but also made American food or food of our neighborhood, you know, which, like, our first apartment was in Rockaway, and it was a, a diverse neighborhood, you know, whites, blacks, you know, Italian, uh, Polish. In fact, I remember my mother, when I was a baby, hard to believe, didn't eat very much. And she was talking to a neighbor who was Italian, and she said, oh, you know what you should try? There's this wonderful breakfast pasta called pastina, and it's noodles that are cut up very, very, very small. She said, you should try giving that to your son. And so my mother did, and I kept spitting it out, spitting it out, and spitting it out. My mother runs into her neighbor a few days later, and she goes, he just won't eat it. And the woman said to my mother, well, how long are you cooking it for? And my mother looked at her and said, oh, you're supposed to cook it? <laughs> so I had that going for me. But, you know, and you know, spaghetti and meatballs. And look, you know, our, my family was also, as many of the people in the neighborhood were, because it was a project, you know, middle to lower middle income. And so there was a lot of uh, food that you could stretch a budget, you know, spaghetti and meatballs or meatloaf or, mm -hmm. you know, the things that we look at, we call comfort food. I mean, my mom, you know, one of my favorite meals that she would make would be uh, oxtail stew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Back then, oxtails were poor people food. You know, nobody was serving oxtails at restaurants unless you could find a Jamaican restaurant. Yeah. So, I remember my mother being upset with, I think it was Bobby Flay. I can't remember who it was. But back in the 90s, all of a sudden, oxtail became hot. You know, these you know, high-end chefs were cooking with oxtails. And my mother was just, I walked into the house one day, and she said, you know, those people on the Food Network, I hate them. I said, okay, Mom, why? Well, because they're making these recipes with oxtail, and now oxtail's gone through the roof. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll be sure to bring that up next time I see somebody from the Food Network. I was like, okay. And because my mother wasn't a gourmet cook, she was, you know, she was feeding in quantity. There were eight people in the family. Yeah. Yeah. Except, and I don't know about your mom, I could probably count on one hand growing up that I actually saw her eat. She was always getting up and back and forth. She'd sit, and then she'd get up again, which was why she was so small. Tell me about your mom. What was her name? And did she have a kitchen personality? Was she different in the kitchen than she was in the workplace or when she went to church or when she went elsewhere? Her name was uh, Isabel Bernadette Smith. She was the second youngest of nine. In the kitchen, I mean, basically, my mother was pretty much the same person, whether in the kitchen, out of the kitchen. You know, she was a uh, a very dominant personality. But it's not like she kept us out of the kitchen. It was just logistical. There just mm -hmm. wasn't a lot of room in the kitchen. So we just kind of stayed out. She didn't ask for help uh, and... <laughs> He didn't volunteer it because if you got into the kitchen, the odds are you would be dragooned into dishwashing duty or dish drying duty. So if you could stay out of her line of sight, you were probably better off. But no, she was, you know, she was a, a personality, if you will. She would create personalities. Like she would kind of tell my friends that she used to be an opera singer. Well, she wasn't an opera singer. She, I mean, she sang in church, but that was, or she would create like gibberish languages. 
just create phrases. And we're like, what? Like what is what? she talking about? You know, we had no idea. Like pig Latin or something? Or just yes, like... Yes, but not. You know, just <laughs> like she... I remember she was going, Shamil and Blovig. I was like, what is that, Mom? And she's like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you just accept what your mother says and does. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of... That was Isabel or Izzy. Everybody called her Izzy. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, she was a character, you know. But you know, when it came to food, I remember early on, there was a Fanny Farmer cookbook for the most part, she wasn't following recipes. You know, she kind of made it up as she went, or somebody told her a recipe, or she saw something in the paper. You know, it was just what was on sale. Mm-hmm. You know, what mm-hmm. could she get in bulk? I remember my folks had a uh, chest freezer in the basement so that when stuff was on sale at Western Beef in Queens, you know, they could buy like a, a big side white of beef. Chest, or, but yeah, you would big have white to chest. Like- almost dive into to get to the bottom of it? You could put a body in there, basically. You know, if you were, if my parents were the homicidal type, they could have (laughs) stored somebody in there. What did you learn about generosity in the kitchen? And I ask this because we've never worked together. We've worked at one point on competing networks. We're both journalists. So I know a lot of people who've worked with you and known you over the years. And the thing that they always say about you is he is exceedingly generous with his time, with his resources, with his advice. So what did you learn about generosity watching your parents in that kitchen? You know, I think it was one of the, like a lot of people. I think we didn't have a lot of money, but you shared yourself through food. If tragedy befell one of your neighbors, there was a Corningware dish of something that went to that neighbor. There was always an opportunity to bring something to somebody, whether it was if one of the neighborhood kids was sick, a plate of brownies or something like that. You know, members of my mother's rosary society would drop in and you'd hear them talking. And the funny thing was, it was like my mother would, when they weren't there, she'd talk about them. Like, you know, it was like, oh, that Mrs. So-and-so. I said, Mom, so why are you why, why are you going to the Rosary Society if they drive you all crazy? Well, that's it's very important. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, you know, we do a lot of good work. I said, okay, <laughs> even though you're ready to kill half of them, but that's all right. I remember my mother was the keeper of the family books. You know, my dad literally came home put his paycheck on the, this is obviously before we had direct deposit or anything like mm-hmm. that. I remember mm-hmm. that envelope on the table and my mother doing the books and juggling and, you know, and the, so to the point where... Was that the kitchen table? He'd, she'd be sitting at, at the, the kitchen, kitchen table. table. You know, she'd just be sitting there and do... Again, because the table was so small, we things tended to happen more adjacent to the kitchen or in the, in the dining room. And that was... Like some of my memories of uh, my mother going back and forth between the kitchen and the dining room, which was literally 10 steps. That's where everything really, in a sense, happened, whether it was Friday night board games, playing Monopoly or Scrabble. A lot of Scrabble, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My mother was a big believer in words and reading, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we would pop popcorn or a big bowl of, and I don't know why this started, but a big bowl of in-shell salted peanuts. I don't know why. That sounds delicious, but kind of messy. Yes, yeah, but we each had a bowl, and, and there you go. I want to return to something you said, that scene where your dad would come home from work and put the paycheck on the table. That is not uncommon 
but it's not something that I think is well understood in American life that there was a time when men were seen as the primary breadwinner and there was an assumption that they handled the finances, that since they often brought home the most money that they made the decisions about how that money was spent, what was put away, what investments did they make in their children's future and putting a little bit here and there for the holidays or maybe for a family vacation. But in a lot of households, that was actually the mother, that was actually the woman in the household that was making those decisions. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. You know, it's it's funny, as I'm getting older, the memories are getting fuzzy. You know, I, my dad's been gone for over 20 years. My mom's been gone for 15. But I seem to recall early on in their marriage, when I was very small, he mismanaged the money, and so she took it over. What I learned equally from them was, A, my mother's frugality, but I also, I think, inherited my father's entrepreneurial side, if you will. He was a bus driver, but he also, I think he actually, because again, he didn't have to do it constantly for the family. He liked to cook. And he and a couple of buddies at the depot, because there was no lunchroom, a cafeteria kind of thing, they created their own lunchroom in a sense. And so they would cook for when my father wasn't on his shift, he'd come in early, depending on whatever shift he was, and would do lunches for the bu- other bus drivers. Wait, at the depot? like he had... At the depot. Really? Yeah, they carved out an area. Uh, he and I think it was three other buddies. And they created a lunchroom. And so he always had a little bit of a side hustle. And then with my uncle, they had a little bit of a... And if they were better businessmen, they might have made it more of a go of this. But they had a bit of a, a moving company. But, you know, I think a 40-hour week plus the food and trying to do moving was something I had to give, so he gave up the, the moving. But so from both of them, I inherited, I think, something that's led me to where I am today. What was the eight-year-old Al Roker like? I was, and still am, I was pretty shy. That's hard to believe because you're so outgoing now. Yeah, I was not like the class clown. I, Yeah, I was, you know, a chunky kid. Yeah, you know, I wore glasses. You know, I wouldn't consider myself one of the popular kids, but I had a sense of humor and I could draw. And I loved comics, comic strips, comic books. And so I would draw comics of my, I went to a Catholic school of some of the nuns and priests and classmates. And, and I was always interested in media. My mother said when I was six or seven, I described live TV shows as dry shows and filmed TV shows as wet. That's interesting. You understood even then. Yeah. And one of the things about a bus depot is that there would be a number of items that people would come to sell that, quote, fell off the back of a truck. Uh-huh. This is a podcast, so people can't see the air quotes that you just Yeah, the that, air quotes that, that fell, fell off, the, off back the back of, of a truck. truck. Yeah. Yeah, that were procured in interesting ways. Yes, yes, in interesting and nefarious ways. <laughs> and so my dad would, I remember him bringing home, when I was 11, a 3M Wallensack reel-to-reel tape recorder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is before 8-track, before cassettes. And I would read up on stuff. And I figured out that if you took the back of the TV set off and you ran uh, wires from the speaker leads into the line-in of the recorder you could record audio off the television. And so I would record TV shows 
And then I'd bring my mother down to the basement. I said, you've got to hear this. I just spliced together the theme from Batman and the theme from Superman. And of course, I was oblivious to this look of just abject terror on her face, like, this kid's never leaving this basement. He will be with us for the rest of his life. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, so that was, and she'd bring down a grilled cheese sandwich. And in fact, speaking of television and food, there was a comedian, I don't know if you're old enough to remember him, a TV comedian named Soupy Sales. Oh, I remember Soupy Sales, And yes. Soupy Sales, he was famous for, you know, getting a pie in the face. But early on, he had a kid show, a daily kid show in the afternoon at 12 noon on the ABC stations. And every day at the beginning of the show, he would tell kids what he was having for lunch. And so you could have lunch with Soupy. And so my mother, a couple, two or three times a week, would make, and it was always like a ham sandwich or a grilled cheese sandwich, and my mother would make that lunch for me, and I would have lunch with Soupy. Uh, Look, that is the, I know I'm jumping around here, but it was really the language of love. Yeah, food is love. I got to go back, though, to the splicing of the tape and grabbing the audio from the back of the television. There are several things that are amazing about that. One, I can hear the mashup of Superman and Batman, and that sounds, you were mixing before people were mixing, so that was interesting. (laughs) I think it it shows, you know, extreme genius and intellect on your part, but the thing that is most amazing to me is that your parents let you touch the television. Yeah, we had an old set in the basement, an old black and white. I was, like I said, I was very interested in this, and so... With a splicing block and a straight-edge razor blade, you could splice stuff together. My sister told me one of the things I used to do was I would go to them and ask them, like, simple questions, like, do you like ice cream? Yes. Uh, do you do you like going to the doctor? No. And then I would re-record my questions and splice in their answers and blackmail them. And say, hey, do you think mom and dad are really kind of stupid? Yes, I do. Oh, you were a troublemaker. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I would bribe them. I kind of like blackmail them. And you would bribe them to do what? You do You do the dishes for me and I'll never show this to mom and dad? Exactly. I'm going to play this for them. I don't think I ever actually did, but it was the threat. I'm sorry that I can't reach out to your sibs to hear their version of that story. <laughs> cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the Audible original, Your Mama's Kitchen. Like what you're hearing? The next episode is available now, exclusively from Audible. Visit audible.com slash kitchen and hit the follow button for the latest episodes each week. You can listen to new episodes on Audible two weeks before you can hear them anywhere else. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. 
And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. I love to be able to cook in a kitchen and have a good meal with the people I care about all around me. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen at a big island and we were able to all get in and do our thing together and sit down in the adjoining dining room and have a long, loud meal and then clean up afterwards and continue the conversation. I loved being able to do that and Airbnb allowed that to happen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. Hosting your home on Airbnb is a great way to make some extra money. It's very practical as a side hustle. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? I know, I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball. And it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. Available multi-terrain select. With all of these options, you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You are, for many of us, a face and a voice associated with Thanksgiving. Because of your segments on the Today Show, because of your role at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, So I'm curious about what that holiday has meant for you over years. What was Thanksgiving like in your childhood home? And how do you celebrate Thanksgiving? Because it must be a complicated day for you now. But let's go first back to St. Albans. And what was Thanksgiving like back there? I remember, and again, growing up in New York City, and this is probably unique to New York City, in that there were two broadcasts that happened every Thanksgiving. There was the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And then right after that, Channel 11, which is an independent station here, would run Laurel and Hardy's March of the Wooden Soldiers. And I'm a big Laurel and Hardy fan. Anyway, I remember, you know, we'd come downstairs and my mother would have a big bowl of fruit and shelled nuts in the living room where our TV was. So we would come down in our pajamas and we'd start watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And my mother would then start prepping the Thanksgiving meal because we always ate early. Mm -hmm. And at some point during the parade, we'd go up, we'd get showered, bathed, and get dressed. I mean, not fancy dressed, Mm -hmm. but, you know, shirt and pair of pants and everything. And by now you start to smell the turkey and my mother's making the dressing. and, And then we'd watch the March of the Wooden Soldiers, which was about... 90 minutes. And so by 1.30, that was done. The table was set. And she'd call us in to help set the table. And by 2 o'clock, we were having dinner. And uh, I always remember there was always a, a, 
at each place setting, there was always a bowl of Del Monte fruit salad there. Oh, the one with the little maraschino cherry, the little red yep, cherry? Yep, with that little red maraschino mm-hmm. cherry that has literally that color red does not exist in nature. <laughs> I don't know what kind of red dye number 65 they used to yeah. get that. But. And then we, you know, we there would be the blessing of the table and, and there wasn't enough room on the table so that there was some stuff in the kitchen, some food, you know, and you'd help yourself. It was kind of buffet and boom. And then, you know, you grow up and the rite of passage as an adult, I'm sure for you as well is when you have your family and you're prepping Thanksgiving dinner. And again, as you said, it became a little complicated because I'm doing the parade. So what I would do, I'd prep a lot of stuff at night, and this was teamwork. And are you the cook or is Deborah the cook? Who cooks in your family? I'm the cook, but Deborah was the facilitator. So while I'm at the parade, I've left a kind of a schedule of what needs to go in when. Oh, you leave a schedule. So is it written yeah. like on the refrigerator or some sort of no, text no, just that you a, give her? No, a sheet of paper, you know, on a yellow sheet of mm-hmm. legal pad. And so Deborah was really responsible. I mean, she was really at the important role till I would get home because I'd get home. It ends at, at noon. I get home about 1220. You know, we'd have people coming over about two, three o'clock. So, and we'd also have people bring stuff. And, and about 10 years ago, Deborah and I were having a, uh, lunch at Bar Balud on the west side near ABC. Mm-hmm. And Danielle Balud came in. Famous chef, we should just say for people famous who don't chef. know. Very famous chef. Just not New York, but around the world mm-hmm. at this point. Anyway, he came into the restaurant and he said, uh, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And I said, uh, well, Danielle, I, you know, I make it. I did this whole thing. He goes, why don't you come to the restaurant and uh, come to Danielle for Thanksgiving? I said, oh, that's nice. Thank you. And I had no intentions of doing it. And Deborah said, why don't we just try it? And I went. And they had the traditional Thanksgiving meal, and then some. And it was like this revelation. It was like the skies parted. The sun came down, shone on this table. (laughs) And I said, oh, my God, why haven't we done this before? (laughs) This is spectacular. Oh, my God. And to the point where, and, and they give you leftovers to take home. So I haven't made a Thanksgiving meal in probably 10 years. Our Thanksgiving tradition is parade, get home, shower, change, and then dinner at Danielle. Is there anything, though, that you miss? As good a cook as he is, as amazing a chef as he is, is there anything that you miss? The, the no. Nothing. No. Nothing. Not no. the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows, if that was your thing. No, because or, you know what, I, what we'll do is then that we can, we're blessed, we have a house upstate. We go up Either, depending on how early we eat, we may drive up on Thanksgiving Day, certainly on Friday morning. And then I'll make kind of a mini Thanksgiving meal mm-hmm. where I'll do a small thing of the sweet potato poon. Uh, I'll sweet do, potato uh, poon? Wait a minute. What's that? Oh, my gosh. Well, my mother, I guess it's a Southern. She told us it's a Southern. I don't know. Anyway, it's basically a crustless sweet potato pie. And so you cook sweet potatoes, mash them down, throw in some baking powder, some flour, salt, pepper, brown sugar, crushed pineapple, vanilla, and you put in a buttered casserole dish, and then you bake it at about 350. And this is a holiday tradition, Thanksgiving tradition, when my mother was making dinner. Mm -hmm. And when she'd come to my house, she'd make it. It has a marshmallow topping that you brown under the broiler. Those little mini marshmallows? No, no, no. The the jet puff, Mm -hmm. big ones, big ones. So that it gets a nice brown crust on them. But as you know, with marshmallows, if you're not careful, they will burn quickly. Yeah, can't take a phone call, can't turn your back, got to stay right there. So what has become, as we were adult children, 
it would be whose job is it this year to distract mom so that the marshmallows catch fire. Oh, no. So she'd have the broiler open, and she's watching it. And it was like, don't bother me. Don't bother me. And so one of us would come in, Mom, we need that big serving dish. Where is And because she couldn't delegate, she said, oh, let me go get it really quick. And then, of course, within a minute or two, the smoke alarm is going off. Oh, and no. we're all, like, oh. high-fiving each other. Oh, I'm so— I'm. I'm sorry. I'm on team mom on this one. This is just... Well, that's why we always bought two bags of Jet Puff marshmallows. Because... No, were you doing we... that just because you, you, you were bad? Or were you doing that because some of you actually liked the burnt marshmallow taste? No, no. Nobody liked the burnt. We just liked it because you it was just... just kind you were of, just mischievous It children. happened a couple of times and we realized, this is great. We have to keep doing this. This is fantastic. And oh. then she'd get so angry, faux angry with us, you know, it's like... It's a holiday, so she'd probably let you slide a little bit more than... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Than so she would over otherwise. the we- Thanksgiving weekend, I will make a dish of the sweet potato poon in her honor. Poon. P-O-O-N? P-O-O-N. Okay, sweet potato poon. I might have to introduce that in our holiday tradition. That sounds delicious. Including the burning marshmallows. And, and you know, and I think you can become a cook or a chef or whatever you want to call it. But as much as what your parents do didn't do as they did. <laughs> okay. You know, again, there were six kids. So yeah. breakfast was not a leisurely pursuit in our house. So my mother was not great at breakfast. And even before there were Eggo waffles, mm-hmm. there was something called downy flake waffles. They were square and you know, they frozen waffles. You put them in the toaster. And I remember I was watching some show and when I was a kid, some sitcom or whatever, and the mother was making waffles with a waffle maker. And I was like transfixed by this. And so I remember thinking, when I'm an adult, I'm never having another frozen waffle as long as I live. And I still have a Magic Chef waffle maker that's about 30 years old. It's beat to hell, but it makes fantastic waffles. Not those Belgian waffles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not the big fat ones. Not those, no. Yeah. No. Thin. Mm -hmm. And the waffle is better than the pancake. The reason why the waffle is better than the pancake is that the pancake is a flat surface. So the syrup rolls off. The butter rolls off. The waffle has little indentations Mm -hmm. that can hold those little pools, those golden pools Mm -hmm. of butter. Mm -hmm. And when the butter and the syrup kind of mix together. Right there Mm -hmm. and mix together and then you cut it and it just... I love a good waffle. It gets that nice little crisp on it. I'm team waffle It's just a crisp on the outside, a little fluffy. Here's the other trick, the other thing that I've discovered to add to the waffle mix. A couple of scoops of malted milk mix. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can absolutely see that. A malted waffle. You know what else you can add to a waffle? A little bit of egg whites that have been whipped. So it's almost like just before they get meringue and you put a little bit of Mm -hmm. the egg white in there and it gives the Ah, waffle a little bit of fluffiness to it. That house in St. Albans, I actually had... I've seen it because you went back there on an episode. I remember Mm -hmm. when you went back on a Today Show segment. So I I have it in my mind as you talk about it. And I read that your parents paid $100 for the down payment in the early 1960s. I think it was 1963. Yep. House was $14,900. Yeah. And you still own the house. You have a nephew that lives in that house today. That is a story that is almost impossible right now. You know, housing is so expensive. And so at this time of the year, when we're thinking about the bounty of the holidays, when we're thinking about preparing Thanksgiving meals, we should also 
be mindful of those for whom the kitchen is not a place of plenty. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you have a a message of hope or insight for families who struggle to make rent or, or put food on the table or make the Thanksgiving holiday special when there's just not enough to go around. Yeah. It is the idea that one in four children in this country are food insecure just seems a travesty. There are a number of us that are really blessed. And I, like our church for a long time does a lot of food drives, not just at the holidays, but all during the year. And it seems inconceivable, but that there are so many people now trying to organize not just food drives, but listen, food banks mm-hmm. in this day mm-hmm. and age have become a necessity. And so it's very important that we remember those folks and do what we can. I, and one of the things that I have a new appreciation, uh, late last year during Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, you know, it's one, no secret I had uh, a severe medical issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. to be uh, completely I almost died. I didn't know it at the time. Deborah and Leela, my uh, middle girl, were really instrumental in keeping that away from me so I could concentrate. But, yeah, I miss Thanksgiving almost miss Christmas. And I forgot how important those touchstone moments are. And in fact, for Deborah, the first point that she got that maybe I was going to be okay was that I had another procedure. And coming out of anesthesia, she was there and she said, how are you feeling? I says, you know, I, th- I saw this recipe in the New York Times cooking segment for a spatchcock mayonnaise-based turkey. I'm going to make that for Christmas. And she thought, okay, I I think he's going to make it. He's back again. He's back with us. Because that's how important those moments are. I realize that we need to take care of other people who are doing okay, but there but for the grace of God go us. Was the memory of a holiday in retrospect, do you think that deep in your psyche that that was one of the things that pulled you through? I I want another Christmas with my family. I want us all together. Yeah, it was. And, um, yeah, I felt, in a sense, badly because I ruined Thanksgiving for the family, and I was not going to let that happen for Christmas. That's being a little hard on yourself, though, isn't that, Al? I mean, you didn't ruin Yeah, you know, but hey, listen, you know, when you're under pain meds, you go in different places that you might not. But, you know, it was important to me, and it gave me something to push for, and I made Christmas dinner. You said that your all-time favorite meal that your mom would make is oxtail stew. Yes. I think I heard that it's not just any oxtail stew. It's oxtail stew with dumplings. Yes. It's got everything you need in one pot. You got the vegetables, you got the beef, and you've got the starch in these fluffy, dense... And that was what was always amazed me, that you could have something that was dense yet fluffy at the same time. When I think about her, the perfect meal from her, it would be the oxtail stew, collard greens, and a pineapple upside down cake. Okay, now, that is good eating. That sounds... Yeah, no, that was her Super Bowl of food. And it was great because you you could make a lot for not a lot of money on a cold day. My dad got, when we were like, I was like 12, he got into baking. And so he started making like yeast rolls and bread and cinnamon rolls. And so the perfect day 
to walk into that house and smell yeast bread baking, mm. my mother's oxtail stew, mm. and the overtones of that caramelized pineapple was just about as good as it gets. Mm. Well, we're going to share the recipe with our listeners. So is there anything that they have to absolutely get right or pay attention to to make sure that they get the right flavor? You got to saute the oxtails first, preferably in a little oil and their own fat, and don't crowd the pot so that they brown well. You really want them browned because that lends the depth of flavor and try to get the meatiest oxtails you can. Mm -hmm. And don't rush it. Don't rush it. This needs to go low and slow time. for a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I've loved talking to you. Thanks so much. Ah, it's so great to see you, Michelle. That was fun. I liked that conversation. And it was a reminder that we often share the best of ourselves through food. Even when Al Roker's family didn't have much money, they still would make a batch of brownies or a dish of something for their neighbors if they came upon tragedy or if someone was sick. And now, as a fully grown adult with his own money, Al Roker continues to give to and to recognize families less fortunate than his by participating in food drives and food banks. As we step into this holiday season, as food and family come to the center stage in our lives, it's important to remember to extend generosity to others who may need it this season. Maybe consider donating to your local food bank or volunteering at a food drive this holiday. Remember those for whom this is not a season of plenty. Even a little can go a long way. Now, you can find Mama Roker's recipe for oxtail stew and dumplings on my Instagram page. If you try it in your own kitchen, and I hope you do, make sure to use the hashtag YourMama'sKitchen so we can see all of those delicious creations. Thanks for listening. Come back soon. This has been a Higher Ground and Audible original produced by Higher Ground Studios. Senior producer Natalie Wren, producer Sonia Tun, and associate producer Angel Carreras. Sound design and engineering from Andrew Epen and Roy Baum. Higher Ground Audio's editorial assistants are Jenna Levin and Camilla Thurdacus. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Nick White, Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, and me, Michelle Norris. Executive producers for Audible are Zola Mashariki, Nick D'Angelo, and Ann Hepperman. The show's closing song is 504 by The Soul Rebels. Editorial and web support from Melissa Baer and Say What Media. Our talent booker is Angela Peluso. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki. Chief Content Officer, Rachel Giazza. And that's it. Goodbye, everybody. See what we're serving up next week. Copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Higher Ground. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? I know, I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball. And it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us 
to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. Available multi-terrain select. With all of these options, you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.